Audi. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. We've been going three months this week, so big thanks to listeners old and new. If you want to give any feedback or get involved in the conversation, you can find us on the website, that's thebigtravelpodcast.com, on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Pocket Casts. And also if you have an Android phone, just search for the Big Travel Podcast and you should find it. So on to today's guest... Millie Knight, blind Paralympic skier, can tell exactly what type of snow there is by the swish of her sighted guide's skis. She relies on what she can hear, feel and sense, whether that's finding her way to class at school or whizzing downhill at over 115 kilometres per hour, seeing only the blurred orange flash of her guide in front. Still only 19, she's competed in two Winter Olympics, winning two silver medals in South Korea, and sees the world through her travel photography. She's an absolute inspiration. She's Millie Knight. So you're in the Paralympics GB team, Great Britain, in alpine skiing, slalom, downhill skiing and more. Is that right? Yes. And in 2017, you became Great Britain's first world champions on the snow with your sighted guide, Brett Wilde, which is a great name, by the way, for uh, what he's doing. It's very apt. Great Britain's first world champions in a snow sport and were also awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Kent. Does that describe you? Yeah, (laughs) Dr. Millie. (laughs) Dr. Millie. What was the doctorate for? Explain that. So the official title is Doctor of University but I got it for my commitment to sport. And that's before you've even gone to university? Yeah, at that time I didn't have my A-level results. (laughs) You're world number one in downhill skiing. Yes. And you've just come back from the Winter Paralympics in South Korea. How were the Winter Paralympics for you? You won silvers, it looked amazing. Yeah, it was was fantastic. I was fortunate enough to go to Sochi when I was 15, so they were my first Paralympic Games, and I was only there for the experience and just to sort of see what it was like, but the performance was sort of something that came after. It didn't, it didn't really matter how I did. And I think that, that made me sort of... It put me in a really good position for, for the Paralympics in 2018 where there was a lot more pressure on me. My performance was uh, expected to be good <laughs> and it was it was a very different atmosphere in Sochi compared to Korea. Just because I was... I was 19 in, in Korea so a little bit older and a bit more experienced but yeah no they were they were still fantastic and yeah they were, they were good fun. How does it feel when you're going rapidly downhill on slippy stuff and very fast and can't really see where you're going? 
people often ask me why I ski because it's not the sort of generic path <laughs> you know you lose your sight and you go skiing it's it's not something that many people do <laughs> but I, I like it because at the time when I was when I was six when I lost my sight and started to ski I was playing ball sports that you can imagine weren't my forte but my school were pretty good at <laughs> putting me in goal for hockey and sort of goal shooter and netball <laughs> I mean it's quite optimistic of them but I, I struggled I struggled at it and cross country I'd run into trees and I wasn't very academic at the time either. Then I started to ski and it was something that was totally different. There was nothing like it in my day-to-day life that was even vaguely similar to skiing. And now in my sort of everyday life, I'm quite restricted in what I can do. And I rely on a lot of other people to help me do sort of basic things. But when I'm skiing, it's just me and Brett and I can control our speed, how fast we go, where we go what direction we go and yeah I, I love it do you ever get scared no i don't i don't get scared well i didn't before my crashes and then i've had a couple of major crashes in the last year and then i sort of yeah then then that's when the fear really crept in and what happened with your crashes so actually at the end of the downhill at the world championships i came through the line and just didn't stop and crashed into the crash barriers and they started to because they were inflatable they started to sort of inflate around me therefore sort of suffocating me and I was sort of not really able to breathe very well <laughs> but that was that was fine I'm just a little bit bruised we took a few days off and then we raced the rest of the competition and then unfortunately I did the exact same thing three weeks later but this time it was out in South Korea so it was the Paralympic test events and the World Cup finals and I came through the line uh, I tried to stop too early and caught an edge and flipped over and flipped three times landed on my head every time and then finished slid on my jaw and sort of damaged that quite badly and blue lighted off to hospital and had really severe concussion and honestly that was the toughest thing that has ever happened to me that concussion it took six months before I was able to go back onto snow and about nine ten months before I really started to feel myself again but the first time we went back onto snow I was terrified we'd flown all the way to Chile and the first run that we did I couldn't even snowplow I couldn't even do the basic basic things and that was quite scary in itself because the season before, you know, we'd become world champions. We were winning every race. We were, if we weren't winning, winning, we were coming second, and we were really on a roll. And then this crash happened, and it was almost like I totally lost how to ski, and that I was learning again. Was that physically or mentally or both? Both. Physically, I recovered sort of about six months, seven months. Obviously, still now I have a few little symptoms, but you know that's that's nothing major but mentally that was the really toughest thing I was just so scared and that sort of thing that was in me before so I remember the world championships just just wanting to go as fast as I possibly could and I would do anything to make myself go faster and now all I wanted to do was anything to make me go slower and that was that was really tough and so our first race of the season was in December and it was a World Cup race. And we weren't expecting to do well because obviously we'd missed so much training and my recovery had gone really slowly. It took a lot more time than we'd expected just because I didn't realise how severe it was. And that race, we were 25 seconds behind first. Uh, I think we came eighth or something. A position I have never come in my life. <laughs> and that was really, really hard. And so we had to sort of reevaluate and think, ah, oh, okay. We're now sort of six months away from the Games and I'm expected to win five golds and I've just come eighth. It's not a great start. And so it was just about forgetting sort of even 
trying to get a single medal at the games and just concentrating on what we could do at the time, how we could make ourselves better. And every race we did from then on, we sort of halved the time between us and first. But when we got to the games, obviously there was another mental challenge there because that was the exact same place that I had my melee crash. Uh, And so I had that sort of mental barrier to get over, as well as the fact that it was the Paralympic Games and the downhill and downhills are they're very <laughs> they're very mentally challenging in themselves because you're having to throw yourself down the mountain at sort of 115 kilometers an hour blind with potential jumps as well <laughs> uh, so yeah there were many sort of mental challenges there what can you actually see you've got some vision yeah so i can see so i have about five percent uh, i can see the peripheral out of my eyes and about two metres, but within that two metres, it's not clear. So when you are going fast downhill, yeah, what, I, what is that you're actually seeing? So obviously Brett, my guide, he skis in front of me. Uh, he wears a luminous orange jacket. And so that's basically what I try and focus on. But apart from that, I can't really see very much else. So that's why we have Bluetooth headsets and our helmets. So a microphone and an earpiece, and we communicate backwards and forwards throughout the course. I'd love to hear what you're saying. You're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately, there's not enough time to say things like that. But Brett will tell me whatever he, he deems important. He will also tell me sort of the directions in the course, what the snow is like, what the terrain is like. And I will say back to him whether I can still see him, whether I can't, whether we need to speed up, whether we need to slow down. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a forward and backward communication that changes between disciplines, but happens within fractions of a second. The slalom must be such a, a challenge. I mean, I think it's a challenge for anyone without a visual impairment. <laughs> yeah. Certainly it looks that way to me. But you're going in and out, in and out, in and out very quickly. Is there a rhythm to that? Or is he telling you left, right, left, um, right at every turn? So the slalom is actually the one we find the, the, the most challenging. But comms-wise, uh, it's actually the easiest because every gate is a is a cue. And so for me, I have to say, yep, 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 yep every time that I receive a a command from Brett and that I've executed a turn. And so sometimes sometimes I forget to do that. But each gate, like I said, is a cue, and so it reminds me to say, yep. (laughs) So actually, it's much easier in slalom to regulate our distance because the the gates are so close to to each other. And there is a rhythm, and it's called a corridor when it's a rhythm, Um, but then there's lots of combinations as well. So they change up the tempo and the direction of the course, and it's it's all very complicated, and sort of things like verticali, hairpin, undergate, delay, all sorts of things like that. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) No. Yeah, so that's slalom, but then downhill is very different in the fact that the gates can be up to 70 metres apart, and so there's not very often are there uh, cues for me to remind myself to say yep but it it also means our comms have to change a little bit because we have more time between each gate and each turn we actually tried to change up our comms on one of the downhill races in austria at the world cup we decided to just talk down the course because we have so much time that we don't need to abbreviate things like we have to do in slalom and i was saying to brett okay speed up please speed up please speed up (laughs) but he thought he thought i was saying slow down and so i think it was about sort of 60 70 kilometers an hour i shot past him as we were just about to go for a jump. <laughs> it was quite funny. Were you all right? Yeah, no, everything everything was fine. But we have learnt that talking is very much not the way to go. We'll just use the set commands that we always use. <laughs> That's just a fascinating way of doing it and communicating yeah. that 
the relationship with you two must be really must be really on the ball yeah so myself and Brett we're not only sort of in a professional sort of partnership we're actually really good friends off snow and I think that is probably the key for our success because I know Brett really well and Brett knows me really well and to that extent Brett now knows whether I'm confident whether I'm not just by the by my breathing and so this is something that I call silent comms where he can take feedback from me and information from me without verbal communication and that is something that saves so much time effort and it's just something that we can sort of crack on with Brett can adjust accordingly and I can also hear what the snow is like what the turn shape is like just through the sound of Brett's skis that's incredible yeah (laughs) so in terms of travel you've been obviously you've just come back from South Korea how Mm -hmm. was that it was a really interesting place because obviously we were there last year but I spent the entire time in hospital so I mean their hospital was fantastic (laughs) how long were you in hospital for not long at all I I spent actually I think I spent a week in in a hotel room after that in just a blacked out room oh was not a good time in my life (laughs) but this time it was actually fantastic because compared to Sochi I didn't get any time to see Russia at all I mean we spent one night in Moscow but we didn't get to go out or anything it was just between flights but in in Korea actually I I managed to sort of escape the village and my sports psychologist took me out for the day and we we were on the quest to just sort of get some lunch or something but on the way we stopped off at a museum and just had a walk around that it was beautiful it was truly amazing and literally sort of 10 minutes away there was a most fantastic temple it was a it was quite a sort of overcast day with fog and this this temple sort of appeared through the fog there was no one there at all and it was it just finished raining and so the atmosphere was wonderful and there were sort of uh, i don't know what they're called sort of bells outside and uh, they were ringing and oh it was the colors were just amazing and because I'm a photographer, it was sort of my heaven. And then we were sort of thinking, oh, we're quite close to the beach. Let's go to the beach. And so we actually really did get to see Korea, sort of down into the, into the like proper Korea. Actually, we had a holding camp in Korea the week before the games, and there was a shanty town actually at the bottom of the mountain. Actually, it wasn't even the bottom of the mountain; it was still on the mountain. And so I, I, I used to just take the bus down. To, to this town and it was the most incredible place and it forms quite a large part of my exhibition actually that I'm holding in the summer because it was just so fascinating and so different to any other culture that I'd been to but the crazy thing was there was this quite sort of old shanty town that sort of clearly didn't have much money but across the road there was a bus stop that had wi-fi and a heated seat <laughs> so it was, it was quite ironic did all the people from the shanty town go and sit there for like yeah. half an hour do their emails yeah. get warmed up yeah it was, it was crazy I've never seen a bus stop with heated seats no, or I haven't either. Wi-Fi. Yeah. the photography thing is fascinating because yeah. people will automatically be very intrigued by that as a visually impaired person yeah. who has five percent vision how does that work with photography um I think it started through the fact that I'd always use photography as a sort of medium to see menus and restaurants and sort of timetables for trains and all sorts of things like that. And I think it sort of developed in the fact that I actually loved taking photos and actually not being able to see something and then all of a sudden being able to see something. And through the viewfinder of a camera, I can see the world in a totally different way. Actually, the, the name of my exhibition is The Camera Doesn't Know I Can't See. It's, it's cool because it, it means that I have a totally different and unique sort of viewpoint and all my photos are quite different to the way that sort of people with sight would, would view a situation. 
Are you using a camera that are you using focus and things like that or autofocus? Yeah, so I use a, a Nikon D3300 currently and various other cameras. It's just, yeah, it's just a massive passion of mine. And I had the most incredible photography teacher when I was at school. His, his passion kind of rubbed off on me. And we used to have s such great conversations about sort of the latest camera and sort of it's so good. It sounds like you haven't, you really haven't let the visual impairment hold you back. Was there ever any points where you were thinking, oh, this is going to affect my life significantly? Or were you too young at the age of six when you lost most of your sight? So actually at the time that I lost my sight, I don't remember. People say, oh, you know, that must have been quite a traumatic time in your life. For a start, I, I have no recollection of it. My mum at the time just was so calm about it and almost reacted to it like, oh yeah, this happens to everyone. And she she just sort of embraced it and no one made a big deal about it and actually the school that I was at at the time just treated me as all the other pupils. It was a bit of a wacky school. We used to sort of build shelters on a Saturday and sleep in them at night and skin and gut rabbits and sort of things like that. Sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, it was fantastic. It was really, really different. Obviously, we did do usual stuff. It was also a, a half French school, half English, so I was I was able to pick up French as well. And they, they, they didn't treat me any differently. And I think that, at the time, really helped my independence now because I, I don't rely on anyone to sort of do anything for me. Can you still um, kill and gut and skin a rabbit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't do it often. There's not a real need for it. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it has changed my life significantly, and I think I, I have always said that it's the best thing that's ever happened to me, and that if someone said that you could have your sight back tomorrow, there'd be no way that I'd change my sight. I, lo I love the way that I see and the way that I view the world and the opportunities and experiences that I've gained from it. You know, I'd have never gone, have gone to two Paralympic Games by the age of 19 or become a doctor or, or, any, or any, anything that I, I've done and met the people that I've met and the places that I've been to. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for losing my sight. And I think I'm, I'm very lucky. For this season, we've been to 16 countries. So you've been, you went to Sochi and you didn't get to look around there. You did get to look around South Korea. You mentioned yeah. Chile. Chile, yeah. It's been quite a lot of travelling. Uh, we spent sort of seven months of the year away. Yeah, Chile was the furthest we've been this season. It was, it was cool. We, we had, unfortunately, three major storms when we were there and every storm brought, well, actually one of them brought four metres of snow overnight. And so we woke up in the morning and our windows were just totally black because all the snow had blocked it up and we couldn't actually get out of the hotel because all of the doors were, were blocked up and actually it, the snow plows that, that groomed the pistes had to come and dig us all out. So we, we actually spent sort of, we were there for a month but we actually only got 10 days on snow. So that wasn't ideal that we'd flown all of that way. It was a really interesting place. Where, did you look around when you were there? No, actually we, di we didn't get any time to see Chile, which, which was a shame I guess when you go all that way and you only see one run of a slope and an airport. <laughs> I guess you're there to do a job there. And also you're, yeah, exactly. you're going to be going to all the very snowy, cold places. So yeah. they have, by their nature, a limit on what sort of what you can visit and, and yeah. who lives there. And yeah. luckily you have the temple and the villages in South Korea. Yeah, that was fantastic. That really did make my trip. <laughs> so you've been to 16 countries in the last seven months? Actually, 15, because I counted Russia. <laughs> So where else have you been? So obviously South Korea. We went to Canada, uh, I think just after Christmas, because we, unfortunately Europe had had such a bad season for the snow. Uh, well, bad in our eyes, good in everyone else who likes powder. But unfortunately we had so much snow that we had, I think we had 20 World Cup races planned for last season, 
and uh, only 10 of them ran because there was so much snow. We went to a place called Tien in France where their season had, had only been going for about a month at the point that we'd, we went there and they'd have, se- they'd have seven metres of snow in a month. It was crazy. Was that good for some people though? Yes, but actually because there was so much snow, the whole mountain had to close because the chairlifts were sort of buried and <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a little bit of a disaster. So that meant that we hadn't run any downhill races and I wasn't confident going into the Paralympic Games having not run a downhill race in over a year. Uh, and the last one that I did, I crashed. Yes, I can see uh, so your I, reticence. Yeah, about. so we really, really needed to go to Canada to get these races. And yeah, it was it was fantastic. The snow was wonderful. And Canada is sort of my favourite place, I think. Uh, where else have we gone? Obviously, we went to Germany, Austria, Switzerland, France. And this season, we're going to Holland, actually. Because in the in the summer they have fantastic indoor dome. I was going to say, where on earth do you ski in Holland? I lived there and it was it's just flat as a yeah. pancake. <laughs> so a place called Langreth, and we can train slalom there three times a day, every day, and it's consistent and it's fantastic training. And is it good? Is it those indoor ski facilities? Mm-hmm. Are they just as good and do they emulate real snow quite well? Yeah. So Langreth and a place called Wittenberg in Germany, they're the two places that we go to to train slalom wittenberg is basically just sheet ice there's not really very much snow on there so it's fantastic training it's the toughest you can possibly train on but for me last year it really really helped me so we're going back there a couple of times this summer what are the specific challenges as a visually impaired person with traveling i think you have to be a lot more dependent on people and i think i've learned over the last few years of becoming a little bit more independent that i have to ask and when I ask, my life becomes so much easier. But it's actually about being brave enough to ask and brave enough to use my white stick. And But actually, I'm quite lucky. Brett, my guide, he's he's so good at sort of um, coming down to London, picking me up, and then we fly to wherever we need to be. And so I, most of the time I travel with him. And so that does make my life so much easier. And I guess tra- travelling as a visually impaired person is, means that you have to take a lot more public transport. So you have to sort of allow a lot more time to travel and allow for delays and things like that. But that's, I guess that's sort of every commuter's nightmare. Do you think that generally places are well set up for people with visual impairments or disabilities in general? Yeah, I think so. I think since London 2012, I think Great Britain has um, become a lot more aware of disabilities and how to treat people with disabilities. I think that that has been one of the best things that's happened, especially to London. I think some of the tube stations still don't have step-free access, which for me obviously isn't isn't a problem, but for many wheelchair users that is a massive problem. But I think things are slowly changing, and even actually what I love is that the general public are just so fantastic. I could be sort of walking through a station and someone would just randomly come up to me and just ask, oh, are you okay? Do you know where you're going? Do you need any help? Or I'll be fumbling around looking for my train ticket and someone will say, oh, it's, it's that one. And it's just, the generosity is just amazing. You know, especially in London where people are renowned for not talking to each other. It's, it's amazing. I always think that. I travel around with a buggy quite a lot because I've got small children. And people always help and they always offer to help and they chat to each other as well. I mean, you know, you can't talk. People will, will talk about London and other big cities and say, oh, people won't talk to you. That's because you physically can't just, you know, say hello to anyone who's walking yeah. by. But if the occasion arises and there's an opportunity to talk or opportunity to help mm. someone or be helped, I think that people are wonderful and just as open as they are in, in many smaller places and villages, if not more sometimes. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really 
really great. And it does spark up conversations too. <laughs> so that's always a bit of a change in the tube. Do you think that London 2012 Paralympics was a bit of a game changer in the way that people saw Paralympics and it's elevated, I think, it almost to the same level as Olympics. Yeah, I think for me, especially, I was at London, I was lucky enough to go to the opening ceremony of the Paralympics. And for me, that was very much my, my time where I was so inspired by the sort of athletes that were walking out of the stadium representing their country. And I just thought, wow, that's what I want to do. And I think I can now say that I was the generation that was inspired. How old were you at the time? I was 13 at the time. So I... I just started sort of competing for Great Britain but I was still at very very low and early stage and just I couldn't believe all of these athletes that were there and such all the best athletes from around the world were right in front of me like I said I was so inspired by it and two years later I was doing the same thing I was walking out the opening ceremony in in Sochi at my first Paralympics carrying the flag how did that feel that was crazy, yeah, that was um, that was the best ever. <laughs> but going back to London, I think from 2012, I think a lot of household names came from it, especially Paralympic ones. And I think now if you ask someone, oh, name uh, top five of Britain's athletes, uh, I, I guarantee one of them will at least be a Paralympic athlete. And that is amazing. Where Paralympic has come from to now is, is unbelievable. What are your plans for the future then in terms of sports and travel? I have now committed to the next four years, so my third Paralympic cycle. Brett has been released from the Royal Navy now for, for four years as a full-time athlete. Uh, so that's, that's fantastic that I'm able to work with him for the next four years. But I start uni in September, so that's going to be another challenge. What are you going to study? I will be studying psychology, so I'm looking forward to that. Are you tempted to do anything in with sports science or sports management or even sports psychology? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'm sort of just starting out with straight psychology and then hopefully I'll go into a master's in sports psychology. So will you be moving away from home for the I first time? Yeah. That will pose some challenges, will it? It's, it's kind of for the first time, but I spend, like I said, seven months of the year away. So it's, it's almost like I've already left home. But I just come back here when I'm <laughs> when I'm not skiing, uh, so it won't be too much of a shock. I, I say that. <laughs> when you were a little girl, and could you have imagined that you would be doing all these incredible things? No, definitely not. Definitely not. I think, like I said at the beginning, where I was so bad at sport, I wasn't academic. I didn't really know where my life was going to go. I guess not. Not at the age of six, you, you don't really think about, <laughs> oh, where's my life going to go? But I didn't have much sort of potential in sort of academia or anything and I've now left school I got three A stars in my A levels I'm now a doctor I'm going to university and it's crazy how 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 sort of my life has changed but I think it's very much through sport that my life has changed that you learn the discipline the dedication and the how hard work really does pay off and so I think that for me when I was doing my A levels that sort of crossed over quite nicely and I was quite disciplined with my revision and all sorts of things making sure that Timekeeping is actually really important as well because you can't be late for a race, but also at the same time you can't be late for a deadline. Sports teaches people that discipline. Yeah, it does. It really does. Sports. Yeah. What is it about travel that you clearly you're clearly quite passionate about travel? What is it about travel that inspires you? Obviously, with my sport, I'm lucky enough to go sort of all around the world, and as a visually impaired person, that's amazing being able to sort of experience all the different cultures. And but for me, I I do love sort of going to new places initially it's quite hard if I'm on my own because the way that I, I I know a place is through the feel of the ground so for instance Canterbury my home 
I know every crack in the pavement, I know every step, everything. And I knew that from my school to my, I don't know, my photography class, it was 156 steps, walking paces. And so initially when I go to a new place, learning all that's quite challenging, but I, I do like the, the challenge. But obviously for photography, going to these different places is, is fantastic. And I love looking back through my photos and actually seeing, ah, oh, that's what it looked like. Because <laughs> you can get a clearer view yeah. and you have time to look at the photo. Yeah. Uh-huh. So a lot, of the, a lot of the time I don't see these places till I've left. <laughs> Do you rely on your other senses? Yeah, obviously my sense of smell is heightened, but my sense of hearing is one that I rely on pretty much solely. But yeah, if I'm walking with someone, I always put my hand on their shoulder so I can feel the steps and the way that they move. Actually, initially, before I wanted to study psychology, I wanted to be a physio because the way that people move fascinates me. And uh, actually, that's how I recognise people, by their walks. So I can only recognise people if they're walking towards me. <laughs> uh, if they're sat down, I'm, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but people's mannerisms as well kind of help. And so that's, that's why I wanted to do physio, because I was just so interested in, in how people move. But then actually, <laughs> I spent awful lots of time with my sports psychologist, and then it fascinated me about how how people think and why people think certain ways and yeah but actually <laughs> I, I talk about photography we me and my mum because we don't have much family left at home we didn't want to come back to Christmas and sort of it be quite a sort of sad time with just us two over a sort of turkey sandwich so we decided to go to Venice because we were already in Austria so it was just a train journey down but unfortunately there'd been a crash uh, in Austria a train crash and so all the trains were disrupted from Austria to uh, Venice and so it took us almost like two days to get to Venice because there's all these robust replacement services and oh it was such it was it was wonderful because we had no time restrictions and we we got to see all different places and it was so much fun and when we got to venice it was just the most incredible place i'd say that is probably my favorite place in the world other than london because every street every street is it's different but there's no no horrible places even the streets that are sort of the back streets they were beautiful. The architecture was just wonderful. And so for me, just walking around with my camera, we walked miles and miles and miles, and you don't even realise how far you're walking all through these little tiny streets. Yeah, that was that was my f- favourite place, I think. I love Venice. Also, when you get to a new place, it is very much, it's not just about what you can see, it is what you can hear. It's when you step out of the airport for the first time yeah. and you feel possibly a blast of warm air and you can smell yeah. the different foods the different air the temperature you, that is a big part of traveling as well i think mm-hmm. yeah sort of the crowds in venice because we'd, we'd actually gone at sort of christmas time it wasn't it wasn't very busy but um there were still quite a few people there and so the noise was all the hustle and bustle was was fantastic and obviously you have all the sort of street acts and the smell of sort of pizza and everything are oh, fantastic so where are you planning to go other than university, have you got any yeah. more travel plans? So I've always, always, always wanted to go to Ireland. I have, I've never been before. I'm obsessed with the band The Script, uh, and they, they come from Dublin. So I really, I really want to go to Ireland. And so actually, we are going to Ireland now. We're just going just for a little tour, actually, just all around Ireland because I love accents. Accents are my favourite thing, especially the Irish accent because because it changes so so much. And I, I just want to go around, sort of basically listening to all of the accents. We're starting off in Dublin. We're going to down to Cork, and then Limerick, Belfast, everywhere. We're going all around, and I really cannot wait. It's a marvellous place, and the thing about it is, it's so small, but it does take quite a long time to get around because of the roads. Yeah, <laughs> windy and beautiful, yeah. but the most amazing 
views and people and villages and lovely little old pubs that you can stop for yeah. a Guinness. Yeah. And you're going to love it. That might lead me on nicely to my last question because my last question is always about music. Ooh, okay. Because music to me and to a lot of people goes hand in hand with yeah. travelling because it helps evoke memories and yeah. particularly with you, with your heightened sense of hearing. The question is, if you could pinpoint a song, one song, that reminds you of a special moment when travelling, yeah. what might that be? Oh, that's an easy one. So... Hall of Fame by the script <laughs> is uh, the most powerful song to me and um, throughout the time in Korea I played it on repeat and repeat and repeat and people were getting pretty bored of it but to me it sounds like I've, it's the first time I've heard it every time I listen to it and there's a particular set of lyrics in it th at the beginning you can be the greatest you can be the best you can be the King Kong banging on your chest and that's something that now means so much to me that I say it uh, in the start gate just before I'm about to race. Uh, Brett says it too, we say it in the same time. And then we sort of bang on our chests. And it really sort of gets me motivated. But what, what I like most about it is the lyrics are so inspiring and so sort of positive and upbeat. But they wrote the song just after the Paralympics in 2012 had been on. So they were quite inspired by that. For me to know that the song was slightly inspired by the Paralympics and I'm now at the Paralympics repeating the lyrics in the start gate before I go is so powerful. Hall of Fame by the script. That's an incredible way to end the podcast and also <laughs> full circle. Wonderful. Have you told the script? As they yeah, know? yeah, actually they, they sent me a, a good luck video at the start of the season. I remember just crying for 10 solid minutes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Millie. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you again so much, Millie. What an inspiration you are. We're all looking forward to following your career and seeing what you get up to next. I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. And thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. There's a new episode every Tuesday.